0: So we're in the middle of this series, First John, Life and Light is what we're titling this sermon series, and we saw last week that the Apostle John is now directly addressing these false teachers that had divided the original Christian churches that he wrote this letter to. We saw that in verse 26 of chapter 2. These teachers, we learned, they denied that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus had come in the flesh. And John has said that that's not just a you know more liberal version of Christianity. That's a different religion altogether. It's not Christianity at all. The, the message that he has asked them to abide in. And we, we concluded our, our study last week by seeing that Christianity is something that's much more drastic. It's much more radical. Because of human rebellion against God, what the Bible calls sin, our condition is so serious, it's so dire, that God has to come down to us in pursuits. That's what the incarnation is. And as we move into chapter three, the drastic activity of God in the gospel is seen again. The incarnation, Jesus becoming a man, happened, we see here, so that God could make us a part of his family. So that he can be our father and we can be his beloved children. J.I. Packer Uh, In his great book, Knowing God, by the way, Matt read this in CE today. Great minds think alike. This is the exact quote that Matt read in CE. Packer writes this in Knowing God. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his or her father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. That's what I want you to hear this morning. In summary, if you're here today and if you're connected to Jesus Christ in faith, your relationship with God is as close to that as a father and child. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? Has that impacted your life? As we move into chapter 3, John is again wanting to encourage us to abide, to abide in the gospel that we heard at first. He's saying here, remember who you are. That's his main message. And as you remember who you are, it will deeply affect the way you live your lives, specifically the way you fight against sin. We'll look at that next week in verses 4 through 10 of chapter 3. So again and again, we're seeing here that John moves from giving instructive warnings about what is true and about what is false to encouraging us in the gospel. So last week was the doctrinal test. He said, you can know that you know that you're really one of God's children if you confess that Jesus is the Christ. And this week he's saying, if you have confessed that, what a drastic thing. What a radical thing has happened in your life. You've entered into, he says, an entirely new family. So we're just focusing really on verse one today. I sat down to write the sermon and it's one of those weeks where I didn't make it past verse one. And I, what do you know, I had a whole sermon. So we'll stop there. And I want, us to, I want us all to see what kind of love the father has given to us. What a joyful text this is, that we should be called children of God. So let me just break this verse down. Chapter 3, verse 1 into three parts for you this morning. Part 1 The kind of love the Father has given us. Look at what John writes. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Now, the entire concept of God, the creator and sustainer of everything, as Father, that itself was a radical shift for the writers and the hearers of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, um, the people of Israel rarely, if ever, thought about or spoke about God as Father. We learn in the Old Testament that God's name, Yahweh, if you read your Old Testaments and you see Lord in all caps, that's a translation of God's name, Yahweh, that was a revered and hallowed name, and rightly so. But the Old Testament people of God had little concept of the intimacy and the nearness that God desires between him and his people. That is one of many reasons why Jesus, when he shows up on the scene, was so puzzling to the Jews. If you go and read John's gospel, this is his epistle, if you go read his gospel, you'll see this. Jesus, when he shows up and begins his ministry, he spoke about his father his father all the time. And in a deeply personal and intimate way, if you're new to the Bible, and if you start by reading John's gospel, which I would encourage you to do, I bet that's one of the things you'll notice when you look at who Jesus is and what Jesus says. He talks about God as father and the Jewish leaders, the religious people of Jesus's day had no idea what to do with him. Just one quick example. In John eight, Jesus says this, I am the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. By the way, good teachers only don't talk like this. Jesus isn't just a good teacher. The things he says about himself make him either a crazy person, as C.S. Lewis said, a, a, a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord. Okay. Back to the text. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus says, you don't know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So notice the language he's using there and the connection he speaks about that he has with his father. And then Jesus teaches that if we are united to him in his death and in his resurrection through faith, then God is our father too. When Jesus teaches us to pray, how does he begin? Anybody know? Our father, our father who's in heaven. It's an entirely new relational world that Jesus invites us into. An entirely new relational world. Jesus came. Jesus Christ came so that we can have God as a father. And very importantly, he is a loving father. John writes, see what kind of love. See what kind of love the father has given to us. The Bible everywhere wants you to grasp deeply, that God, the Father, loves you. That word John uses, has given. You see the verb there in verse one? That's actually kind of an unusual way to phrase it when combined with the idea of love. Think about it. John doesn't say, see how much God loves you. He doesn't say that. That would be true, but that's not what he says. Instead, he puts it a little bit more awkwardly. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given you. That can be translated, see what kind of love the father has lavished upon you. The kind of love the father has bestowed, bestowed upon you. It's hard for us to get. There's not many contexts in which we bestow love on someone. The best example in our culture is a wedding. Think about a wedding, your own wedding, or the last wedding you went to. When you attend a marriage ceremony, um, it is an intentional bestowal of love. It's one thing to love another person generally and to tell them as much, right? But at a wedding, what you do, if you're the bride or if you're the groom, is you summon up your love, and you stand before your friends and your families and all the authority structures of heaven and earth, and you bestow your love on someone else. You give your love to someone in such a way that it permanently changes your life and theirs. And it is a sacrificial, self giving love. That's the word John's using here. That is what God the Father has done with us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells you that God the Father's love for you is personal, it is specific, and it is covenantal. He binds himself to you in his love. He brings you into a new and specific relationship with him in his love, that of a father and a child. Now, this is going to be maybe a little bit sensitive, okay? But I've learned as a pastor and just as a, a Christian over the years that this is hard for us to get our hearts around, isn't it? And one reason why it's so hard for us to get our hearts around God as a loving father is because of our relationships with our earthly fathers. Your relationship with your earthly father is without question, whether you know it or not, it is without question, a massive factor in how you view God, our heavenly father. Uh, Jonathan Franzen is an American novelist, and one of his novels is a book called The Corrections. And um, The Corrections, it's quite an interesting story. It's about this Midwestern family, Um, that raises children and their three children have grown up and moved off into their own separate lives. And Enid, who is the mother, wants all three of her children and their families to come home back to Minnesota for Christmas, that holiday season. And that's where the story picks up. And, And as the novel continues, we learn about each of the three children, Greg and Chip and Denise are the names of the three children. And they've moved into their own lives, and they have not very good relationships with really anyone in their own lives. But what Franzen communicates through the story is how they've each been in their own ways deeply impacted by the brokenness of their upbringing, especially their relationships with their father. Their father's name is Alfred. And at one point in the story, Franzen, the author, writes this about him. The odd truth, he says, the odd truth about Alfred was that love for him was a matter not of approaching, but of keeping away. The odd truth about Alfred was that love was not a matter of approaching, but of keeping away. Maybe your father was like that or is like that. Love for him is not a matter of approaching you. It was a matter of keeping away, which really isn't love at all, by the way. What is your father like? Can I ask you to do something? Close your eyes and uh, think about your father if you can. Recall him. I know this is sensitive for some of you. What do you think of? What adjectives come into mind? Some of you are remembering him as distant, as unapproachable, perhaps, much like Alfred in Franzen's novel. He was always gone, always working, hard to know. Some of you don't even know your father. He was never a part of your life. The Holy Spirit, through God's word right now, wants to tell you this. God is not that kind of father. He is near. He's available. He's always present with you. Psalm one: he's an ever-present help in times of trouble. Some of you, you're remembering your father as as disapproving, as impossible to please. You feel like you can never do enough to earn his love or his approval. The Holy Spirit wants you to know that, that God is not that kind of father either. In fact, he gives you his approval and his love even and especially when you do not deserve it. That's the power of Jesus's life and death and resurrection. God delights in you as a father shows compassion to his children Psalm 103 tells us, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Some of you struggle to do this because your father was unsafe, perhaps, maybe even abusive. Any thought of your dad evokes pain. It evokes hurts. Listen, the Christian faith can bring healing to you because God wants to be a father to you, a perfect one, a loving one, Abba who cares for you and protects you and has great affection for you. And if he's given you Jesus, he will graciously give you everything else. Some of you perhaps remember your dad in great ways. Your dad was around. He was supportive and is supportive. He's a provider for you. He cares for you. Praise God for that. What a gift. These dads point us, though, to the greatest dad, to how God, our Father, gives us perfect love. He always takes care of us. He always provides for us. He's a rock of refuge and a fortress of hope that we can run into at any time. What kind of love the Father has given to us. That's the message of the gospel. Let's look secondly at what John says next, that we should be called children of God. So we have a loving Father, who has bound himself to us. He's a refuge for us. He will never let go of us. And the corollary is that we are his sons and daughters. God has given us love that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Italicize for a moment with me the we there. It's as if John is saying that I'm a child of God. What? That we should be called God's children. John is saying it is stunning that God would make us his children, that God would give us his fatherly love. Why is that so stunning? Because we've not been very good kids. We're rebellious. We're, dis- we're spiteful. We're-, we're hateful. We resent him. And in all kinds of ways, every single one of us countless times have run away from him. We run away from him in one of two ways, really. We're either like the younger brother in that great story that Jesus tells, the parable of the two sons who reject the father by basically wishing he was dead and running off into the far country. Or we're rejecting God by being like the older brother. We, we stay close to him, but in order to manipulate him, and it has made us arrogant and proud. The bottom line is we've done nothing. We've done nothing to earn or deserve God's love. His fatherly love is not reciprocal and it is not merited, which is why it's so stunning that he adopts me, that he adopts us. But that's what he does. But look at that language that we should be called children of God. That language there means that the, because of the work of Jesus Christ for us, our status, our status has been forever altered. When Jesus Christ rescues us, we gain a status as God's heir, as God's child. We're adopted into a new family. We're given a new name. In the ancient world, in the Roman world, this was a massive thing. When when a child in first century Rome was adopted... He was taken out of his previous state and placed in a new relationship of son to his new father, and all his old debts were canceled. And the adoptee started a new life as a part of a new family. Listen to what a New Testament scholar named F. F. Bruce writes about this. He says this quote, In the Roman world of the first century, an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was not in the smallest degree inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. That's what God the father has done for us he has given us his name, his estate, his full benediction rests upon us. But I love how John adds, and so we are. <laughs> Did you see that? What a great verse, that we should be call, called God's children, and so we are. In other words, God's fatherly love, it, it changes our status from orphans into sons and daughters. But it's not only a status change. Rather, it's a it's a truth that we are intended to experience now. You are now a dearly beloved child of God. That's what Romans chapter 8 is all about, by the way. The apostle Paul there teaches that God has sent us, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to confirm and to affirm in our hearts that we are now in reality God's children. Listen to what Paul writes. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Daddy. That's what that means. Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we indeed are children of God. The great uh, Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, I've used this illustration before. There's not a better one, so I'm using it again because I know you've probably forgotten it. So um, Thomas Goodwin was an amazing 17th century Puritan Christian writer, and he tells, uh, gives this illustration to help understand how we can experience God's fatherhood. Imagine that you're walking down the sidewalk, and in front of you is walking a, a father and a, a you know, 10-year-old child at his side, and, and you can tell by their gait, perhaps, by the way they look, that it's a father and a child. There are things you can learn about their relationship merely by observation, right? This is this man's son, this is this child's father, they are part of the same family, etc., etc., etc. But imagine that next the, the father stops and, and he stoops down and he picks his child up and he gives him a huge hug and, and he kisses him on the cheek. And imagine you can hear him say to his son, I love you, son. I'm so glad you're my child. I'm always going to take care of you, and I'm never going to let you get hurt. Now, in that moment, the son is no more a son than he was 10 seconds prior. He hasn't learned a new idea, but this idea has become for him new. It's become real. It's become experiential. He's experienced and felt the reality of the truth that his dad loves him. John's speaking here about the father's hug and kiss for all of his children. We are God's children and now, and and God wants us to feel and experience that reality. How can that be possible? How is it possible that God has made me, of all people, his child? I hope that that sounds almost too good to be true for you. It's possible only through the gospel. This is the good news, friends. Listen, God sent his begotten son, his natural son, if you will, Jesus, to make all of us his adopted sons and daughters. Jesus took the punishment we deserved for turning our backs on God by having God turn his back on him. Jesus brings us into the family, even though we are corrupt and guilty, because for a time, Jesus was cast out of the family into the darkness, the work of Jesus is what gives us this kind of access to God. It's what gives us this new family. It's what gives us this great father. How great is the father's love that we should be called his children. That is what Christ has done. What an impact this can have on your life. What an impact this can have if you feel like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't really feel like I'm encountering or experiencing God in any sort of real, powerful, or moving way. Listen to the reality of your sonship or daughterhood. It can free you. It can change you. It can transform you. Think about what kind of things this can do in your heart. How can you be afraid? How can you be anxious if we have this kind of fatherly love from this kind of God? If he is for us, who can be against us? How can we doubt his provision and care? How can we be mistrustful of him when he has fulfilled such great promises to us already in Jesus? This news, it frees us, you see into bold faith. It gives us new purpose. It transforms our fears into hopes. This news takes away the shadow of guilt. It takes away the pain of our shame. This news changes everything. Can you see it? Does anybody see it? That's the last thing I want you to see. See. That's the first word. Can you see it? Look. Behold. What kind of love the father has? Tim Keller writes on this verse, something that struck me for the first time ever this week. He says that John is actually experiencing God's love as he writes this verse. John is experiencing what he's telling us to experience in the writing. It's as if John is saying, 90-year-old John, can you believe this? Look at this. Behold this. This is stunning. This is incredible. This is amazing. Do you behold God's fatherly love? I'm not asking if you understand it. I'm asking if you stand under it. I'm not asking if you get it in your heads. I'm asking if you experience it in your hearts. Do you behold him? Do you see him as the God who pursues you to bring you into his family? Listen, if you're newer, that is why we planted this church. That's why. There's a difference between understanding this love and beholding this love. And this is what John is after here. It's what the Holy Spirit is after as he inspired John to write these words. He wants to fill us with assurance of God's fatherly love in Jesus. He wants you to know that God is always pursuing you with his love, even when you don't believe he really loves you, even when you don't believe he'll really be there for you, even when you don't believe he can really save someone like you, he is pursuing you like the prodigal God that he is. Do you see that? Do you behold it? This makes me think of Rocky. You're like, why does that make you think of Rocky, Luke? That's a very weird transition. Not Rocky 4. Uh, Rocky 1, if you've seen the earliest Rocky movie, really, Rocky 1 is a love story. It's not him ending the Cold War by beating Drago, which is another sermon for another day. Uh, Rocky, uh, in Rocky 1, is this young uh, Philadelphia boxer who's on the down and outs, and he's met this young girl who works in a pet store in South Philly, and her name's Adrian. And Adrian is very mousy and very shy and has no self-confidence at all, and doesn't really even know how to interact with a man. But Rocky, every day, every day, walks into Adrian's pet store with a new joke for her. None of them are good, by the way, all bad jokes. But he walks in every day with a new joke, and, and he tries to make conversation with her. He pursues her. He loves her even though she believes that she is completely unlovable. And her brother, Polly, you might know Polly if you're a Rocky fan, he's mistreated Adrian her entire life. He's always verbally abused her and treated her with disdain. And Rocky eventually finally gets Adrian to go on a date with him. And they go ice skating together. It's a great scene. And they fall in love. And in one great scene after a date Rocky and Adrian are together, and and he looks at her, and and he takes off her glasses, which she's worn throughout the entire film to this point. And and then he takes off her her hat, and and her hair falls down. And, And Rocky looks at Adrian lovingly, and he says, I always knew you were beautiful. And Adrian replies, you don't mean that. Don't tease me. And Rocky says, no, you're beautiful. He really loves her. And the whole story is him convincing her of the reality of her status before him that he adores her. He will do anything for her. He's not going to stop loving her. She is beautiful. That's what God wants you to know about his love for you. He is a father who pursues you with his love. Do you behold that? Let me close with one more thing. Look at what John says. Behold, what kind of love? That, that word there, three words, what kind of. That's the translation of one word in the original language. It's a Greek word. And this is kind of an idiomatic phrase in Greek. And idioms are hard to translate, right? Like if we were to try to translate, what's an idiom? It's raining cats and dogs, right? Translate that into another language, it's not going to make sense because it's an idiomatic expression. Same thing here. Literally, that word means uh, from what country, From what country? So a literal translation would be, from what country does this love come from? It's like John is saying, this is a love I have never seen before. It's from a different country. It is E.T. love. It's from a different world. It's alien. It's foreign. Can't you see it? John is saying. And John's right. The father love of God is entirely unique. The question is, not do you understand it, but do you see? Do you behold? There are two types of people that go to church on Sundays in our city. Two. The first type are those who see God's love and they think, I can't, I can't believe that God loves me. They're, they're just completely stunned. They're flummoxed and confused that God would love them. There's a sense of wonder. They're joyfully shocked at God's love. There's an amazement to it. The second type are those who are just religious and for whom there's no wonder and no amazement. Our church exists to see everyone move from type two to type one. We want every single one of you to see in Christ the father love of God and to experience your adoption. We want everyone to have this truth light up our hearts. We're all a mess. God loves us and anyone can get in on this. We're all a mess. God loves us. Anyone can get in on this. We want you to be able to sing with some of the great Hymn writers, we're going to sing this in just a minute. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me? What? Who caused his pain? I caused his pain. Amazing love. How can it be that Christ, that God, my Father, has, has died for me in Christ? How is it possible that, that God loves me that much? No one can do that. No one but God. You're right. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Let's pray.